reading this morning is from Romans chapter 7, verses 7 to 25. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. The word of the Lord. As we begin, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word through which you speak and reveal yourself to us. So I pray in light of that truth that I as preacher would just get out of the way. There'd be far less of me and far more of you. That your people gathered this morning would be edified, your son Jesus glorified. For we ask this in his name. Amen. 
number of years ago, I was preaching on a text that had a similar theme to this passage from Romans that Thelma just read for us. And as I was preaching, I, I noticed a person who was about halfway back who, whose face was getting redder and redder. They were getting angrier and angrier. At the end of the service, we gathered in the parish hall for coffee and goodies, and, and I could see this person in my peripheral vision. They were still visibly angry, consistently looking over at me. I knew what was coming. When the crowd thinned, this person seized their opportunity and came up to me and began to articulate the anger that my sermon had inspired. He essentially said to me, I'm a lawyer. I love the law. And the greatest contribution of the Judeo-Christian tradition to our world is law. It is the law that will be able to shape and change our society. We don't need anything else. We do not need your talk of sin, a savior, a cross. Now as Paul moves into this section of his letter to the church in Rome there would be a large subset of his readers that would similarly be becoming angrier and angrier. Their face getting redder and redder. He can see them in his peripheral vision. For Paul has been using some incredibly strong language to refer to the law, the Mosaic law, the law of Moses, of which the Ten Commandments are a part. He's been saying that the law blocks our relationship with Jesus. The law arouses sin, causes death. The law impedes life in the spirit. And the sooner we gain freedom from it, the better. And if this group were to confront Paul, he knows what they would say. Paul, we we love the law. The law was given to us by God such that by obeying it, we would be made right, justified before God, such that by obeying it, we might have life, be changed, sanctified. And so your talk of the law here is, it's not just just plain wrong, it's dangerous. It's harmful. So how will Paul respond to this circling, angry, red-faced group? And what does it matter? Well, this text gets at the heart of one of the dynamics of discipleship that we've been looking at in this section of Romans, and that is that the law can diagnose our hearts, but it can't change us. It can diagnose, but it can't change. See, Paul opens this section of the letter by articulating the anger of this group. What are you saying? That the law is sin? No, no, Paul will say. Like you, I love the law. It's good, it's righteous, it's holy. I'm not dismissing it. But you're trying to make the law do something it was never intended to do. The law can diagnose, but it can't change. For that, we need something else. Now, much of this passage is spoken of in the first person. I, me, my. And so the interpretation of this passage revolves around who is this I? Now in the first section of the passage, all of the verbs are in the past tense. 
And so most of the commentators agree that Paul is referring to his past experience with the law. What the law has revealed, shown him. Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law, but then the commandment came and sin came alive and I died. What does he mean by this? I think what he's saying is, I was alive once. I felt good, righteous, secure. I could look at the law and say, no adultery, check. No lying, check. No murder, check. But then all of a sudden, the law came home to my heart and brought me under its condemnation. It killed me. I no longer felt righteous, good, secure. Soon after coming to Little T, our family moved into the rectory that's behind the church. And the rectory has parking both at the front and at the back of the house. And depending on what we were doing, we could choose whether to park at the front or at the back to take advantage of this great luxury of downtown living, to have a choice. We were alive, free from the dangers of Toronto street parking. Now, a couple of months after we moved in, Lori parked the car at the front of the house and began to unload the groceries. She came out to find a police officer standing on the sidewalk. The police officer notified her that she was parked illegally on city property, that the parking pad at the front of the rectory is illegal. And if she, he ever found her parking there again, she would face a hefty fine. Before the law came, we were just as illegally parked as after. But we did so with a clear conscience, alive, free from condemnation, free from the fear of a hefty fine. But when the law came, we died. <laughs> and now when we park there, we feel like criminals. We're constantly looking over our shoulders. The law came, and I died, says Paul. Now, what law came home to him? Verse 7, thou shalt not covet. You see, up until that point, Paul could look at the law and say, it's only concerned with the, the externals, right? No lie, check. No murder, check. No adultery, check. No coveting. Uh, oh. Ugh. The law came, and I died. The penny dropped for Paul. The law wasn't just concerned with the externals, but rather with the internal matters of the heart. The law revealed something to him. Something it would reveal in every single one of our hearts. We are not content. We're constantly saying, I'd be happy if I, if I hide. I'd be happy if I accomplished. I'd be happy if I looked this way. I'd be happy if I fixed that problem. Our lives are ordered around pursuing those desires. We're jealous. We're envious of those who have the things that we want. The law exposed that in him. He no longer felt righteous, good, secure. The law came, and I died. But the diagnosis went deeper still. Verse 11, he goes on to say, For sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. He's saying that the law actually 
produced even more sin in him. In the 1990s, there was a New York Times article entitled, After the Preaching, The Lure of the Taboo. And it was commenting on the White House's ad campaign to impress teens to stop smoking. And yet, over the time of the ad campaign, the percentage of teenagers who were smoking was actually increasing. And apparently, in light of this, Hillary Clinton used her syndicated column to blame the increase of teen smoking on Hollywood. She said, it's because all those cool people in Hollywood are still smoking that it's undermining everything we're trying to accomplish here. The writer of this article, Richard Klein, was responding to Hillary and said, why are you blaming Hollywood? you need to take some of the credit here to bear some of the responsibility for the increase in teen smoking. For your moral condemnation is simply enticing transgression. What he's getting at is pretty simple and something I think we all know, right? If you want to get people to transgress something, simply tell them that it's wrong. Now, why is that? There's a very famous story in Augustine's Confessions. It's uh, the story of his coming to faith in Jesus. And he tells a story of boyhood mischief. Apparently he and some friends broke into a pear orchard. They stole a whole bunch of pears, took them away, and threw them all to a herd of pigs. They were nice pears, he writes, but I wasn't all that interested in the pears. I had much better ones at home. I picked them simply in order to become a thief. The only feast I got was the feast of iniquity, and that I enjoyed to the full. What was it that I loved in that theft? Was it not the pleasure of acting against the law in order that I, a prisoner under rules, might be, have a maimed counterfeit of freedom by doing what was forbidden? The desire to steal was awakened simply by the prohibition of stealing. And in reflecting on this incident later in life, Augustine said that he believed that underneath every transgression, underneath every sin, is this ultimate motive to play God. We all have this deep desire within us to be in charge of our own lives, our own world, to be in control. We are the gods of our own lives. We are the captains of our own destinies. And every law that God lays down infringes upon that freedom. And we hate it. The law, says Paul, is a diagnostic tool. It reveals sin. It reveals the power of sin. Stirs up the desire to do the very things that the law prohibits. And now, concludes Paul, does that mean that the law brings death to me? No, no, he says. That's the fault of sin. The law only reveals it. Let's say you go for an MRI or a CT scan or an ultrasound and something gets discovered. You get a diagnosis. Would you turn around and, and blame the diagnostic tool for your illness? Of course not, right? It's just the diagnostic tool. But if it is the diagnostic tool, you can't then turn around to it and say, cure me, heal me. It wouldn't work, right? It's a diagnostic tool. 
Similarly, the law can diagnose us, but it can't change us. And this is where Paul moves next. In the latter half of our passage, Paul's first person singular moves from the past tense verbs to present tense verbs. And so it triggers another question. Who is the I now? Is this person unconverted? Are they converted? Is it Paul? I think we can say right off that this cannot be an unconverted person because an unconverted person doesn't say, I love the law. I delight in it. (laughs) So is this a converted person? Is this Paul himself? That certainly has been the predominant thinking of this passage for some 2,000 years. That Paul is speaking of his present experience as a follower of Jesus. It's why followers of Jesus often find great comfort in these words. Well, if Paul, the apostle, struggled with sin, well then I can feel a whole lot more secure that, that I do too. How many of us have made commitments to, to be more loving, more generous, more understanding, only to find, I do not do what I want to do. Or how many of us have for years battled against a habit, a, a thinking pattern, a behavioral trait that we just can't shake. I do the things that I hate. I mean, there are merits in seeing this as as Paul's present experience because it does indeed resonate with this internal fight within us, a struggle for competing desires. And while Paul does speak of that elsewhere, such as in Galatians 5, I don't think that's what he's getting at here. You see, the predominant feel of this passage is one of condemnation, despair, helplessness. I'm a wretch of the flesh, sold under sin, helpless. Who will rescue me? An interpretation that this is Paul's present experience as a follower of Jesus boils down to this. The more that we grow, the more miserable we become. Right? Where, where's the joy, the peace? the freedom, the the growing in sanctification. Seeing this as Paul's present experience really amounts to this, that the main effect of the gospel is to increase our misery. But Paul's whole point is that we shouldn't speak this way. We shouldn't think this way. Charles Finney, the great American revivalist of the 19th century, said this, I am fully convinced that interpreting these verses as Christian experience has done incalculable evil and has led thousands of souls there to rest and go no further, imagining that they are already as deeply versed in Christian experience as Paul was when he wrote it. Now this is probably different than how many of you have read this passage in the past. It's different than how I've read it in the past. So let's see if we can uncover why we can't say that this is full Christian experience. I want to read the closing verses again and see if you can pick out the common word. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. 
Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do what I do not, what the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Who will rescue me from this body that leads to death? Did you pick up the common word? 34 times Paul will say, I, me, my. Absolutely no mention of God, Jesus, or the Spirit. Paul is not so much concerned with giving us his current Christian experience as much as responding to his angry, red-faced, circling objectors. He's saying to them, I, like you, love the law. The law is good. It reveals the heart and character of God. And if we could obey it, it would mean life for us. But you're trying to make the law do something that it cannot do because of sin. The law can diagnose, but it cannot change. And so if I were to take your thinking on board, if I were to believe like you that the law can change me, shape in me the character of God, then all you leave me with is this. I do not do the things that I want to do, and I do the very things I don't want to do. Paul's eye here is there, his taking their thinking on himself. If I believe what you believe about the law, I could, because of sin, only cry out my inability, my condemnation, my despair. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body that leads to death? He's taking on their thinking. In his book, The Dynamics of Spiritual Life, Richard Lovelace reflects on this truth, and he says this. We all automatically gravitate toward the assumption that we are justified, made right with God, by our level of sanctification. And when this posture is adopted, we inevitably focus our attention not on Jesus, but on the adequacy of our own obedience. We start each day with our personal security not resting on the accepting love of God and the sacrifice of Christ, but on our present feelings or recent achievements in the Christian life. And since these arguments will not quiet the human conscience, we're either inevitably moved to discouragement and apathy or to a self-righteousness which falsifies the record to achieve some sense of peace. But the faith that is able to warm itself at the fire of God's love, instead of having to steal love and self-acceptance from other sources, is actually the root of holiness. Loveless is capturing what Paul is saying and is beautifully setting us up for chapter 8 of Romans, where Paul will go on to say that it is the Spirit that grounds us 
in God's glorious love for us in Jesus, forming new creation in us and through us. So what then should be the relationship of the Jesus follower with the law? Should we take the approach that others in the past have taken to say, oh, we, we can now set the law aside? No, of course not. Paul says the law is good, it's holy, it's righteous. Those are attributes of God. The law tells us what God is like. The law tells us what the Spirit is forming in us. And so in Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, God's laws become promises. Charles Price tells the story of a man who was in jail for stealing. While he was there, a group of Christians went to visit him. And through that relationship, he comes to faith in Jesus. When his sentence is ended, the first thing that he wants to do is go to church. Doesn't care what kind of church, just wants to go to church. He finds a church, comes in early, sits at the back, begins to survey his surroundings. And the centerpiece in this church is on the front wall, this huge rendition of the Ten Commandments. First, when he looked at it, he said, I, I don't need that. I know where I failed. I don't need that kind of condemnation. But then as the service progressed, he began to realize that he was reading them differently than he did at first. Previously, he'd read them, and they said things like, you shall not steal. It was a command. And now it read, you shall not steal. It was a promise. Thank you, Lord. First, it used to say things like, you shall not commit adultery. It was a command. Now it read, you shall not commit adultery. It was a promise. Thank you, Lord. And first, it said things to him like, you shall not covet. And now it read, you shall not covet. It was a promise. Thank you, Lord. For the one who is in Jesus has the Spirit of God dwelling within them. The laws of God become promises. And when you grasp that, all of a sudden you have a book, a Bible, not full of commands, but full of promises. This is what I am making in you by my Spirit, forming in you the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control of the living God. The law can diagnose, but it cannot change us. For that, we need the work of Jesus and the power of the Spirit, for in Him and through Him, God's laws become promises. So let us thank God, as Paul put it, that we've been freed from the law to serve in the new life of the Spirit. Amen? Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.